Welcome to Unsanctimonious, the podcast where two irreverent pastors explore the Bible using the Revised Common Lectionary while doing their best to be unsanctimonious. What does that mean? Well, if the word sanctimonious means self-righteous, holier-than-thou, smug, falsely pious, pompous, self-satisfied, or prideful, we want to be the opposite of that. Your hosts are Jonathan Kleinsmith and the Reverend Mark Jardine. And even though we're both pastors, we won't pretend to have it all figured out. Spoiler alert, no pastor, theologian, or Bible scholar actually does. But we do believe that God is revealed in the reading of these holy words, and our hope is that by listening to this podcast, you might have an encounter with God as well. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into the world's all-time best-selling book and see how it might be speaking to us today. Hello and welcome to the Unsanctimonious Podcast. And boy, are we unsanctimonious. I am one of your hosts, Jonathan Kleinsmith. I am technically a reverend and a pastor. And with me uh, is Reverend Mark Jardine. And he is definitely a pastor and a good man of God. How's it going, Mark? Well, it's going well, and you're a good man of God too. But uh, you know, I think uh, the, the the title Reverend and Pastor those are all tricky titles sometimes. They so they, they are to live into. They are hard to live up to for sure, for sure. So if you guys are just joining us, we are the podcast that uh, explores Scripture using the Revised Common Lectionary. We will pick out a Scripture each week. We will ask that Scripture four questions. Uh, the first question being. What problem is this? What ancient problem is the scripture trying to address? What ancient solution does it offer? What modern problems might it be speaking to today? And what off modern problems might it be, or modern solutions might it be offering? Man, I am tongue tied today. So, uh, today our scripture is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. And so uh, let's look at these scriptures and just dive in. We'll be reading out of the Common English Bible, uh, which is an easy to read translation. But if you prefer some other translation, we would fully encourage you to use that one as well, because the best Bible is the one that you'll actually read. So here we go. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. Listen, my people, to my teaching. Tilt your ears towards the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a proverb. I'll declare riddles from days long gone, ones that we've heard and learned about, ones that our ancestors told us. We won't hide them from our, their descendants. We'll tell the next generation all about the praise due the Lord and his strength, the wondrous works God has done. He established a law for Jacob and set up instruction for Israel ordering our ancestors to teach them to their children. This is so that the next generation and children not yet born will know these things so that they can rise up and tell their children to put their hope in God, never forgetting God's deeds, but keeping God's commandments. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. All right, Mark, as usual, I will uh, throw out the first pitch and you will get the first crack at the bat. So uh, what's going on in this passage? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, this whole uh, 78th chapter of the psalm, or Psalm 78, is, uh, seems to be a teaching, uh, an instructional psalm, uh, uh, somewhat a historical teaching of, uh, for the people of Israel, of course, uh, 
many people sort of credit this to coming to a period of perhaps when uh, Hezekiah uh, was uh, was king and they were reinstituting after the exile. And these teachings uh, were essential and uh, uh, sort of a re creative retelling. It's a historical psalm, sort of a creative retelling of, uh, of Israel's story. And uh, the purpose here is to, of course, pass this on to subsequent generations. So they're coming back, if you can imagine, from, uh, from the exile. And Hezekiah is wanting to help these people reconnect with who they really are. Uh, they have been off. They've probably been, they've been, we know they've been exposed to many other religious beliefs and systems. And now they're coming back. And so he's reoriented, but also wanting them to be grounded in the faith, uh, these foundational beliefs to the point that they can pass it on to the next generation. Uh, because if you remember the story of Israel going into exile, they had had so many failures uh, in terms of keeping the law and obeying and staying faithful to Jesus, to God. Uh, and so he's now, I think if you look at this, the problem that we're dealing with here is that we have a people who are coming back that probably been exposed to a lot of different things. He's trying to center them in a beliefs, the, the belief system of the Jewish faith as the Hebrew people. And then at the same time, he's trying to set it up so that going forward, uh, the faith will not be as vulnerable to being led astray as it was in the past, because now he's encouraging them to teach their children and the next generation so that we don't repeat the history of the past. And so, uh, so I, that's, that's sort of what I would say. That'd be my theory. Uh, I will go with. For no, today. <laughs> I, I think it's a good theory. I think, um, yeah, this, this scripture is definitely, um, calling the reader to to study god's instructions god's kind law right the torah and uh i think what's interesting about it um i think you're right in in the in placing it in a context um where um you know uh maybe the the possibility of of uh always having access to that kind of uh instruction hasn't always been possible uh, because of um, either um, culturally the, the societies around the, the people of Judah at the time, or uh, if this is being written to folks that are in the exile, the, uh, you know, the, the need, the inherent um, like need to maintain cultural identity in the midst of, uh, of exile, right? Like instruction becomes really important, but um, what I think is really interesting about that, a lot of times when we read scripture, we sort of think, um, and this is like a, maybe a modern Christian problem, because I don't think it's been a problem for thousands of years, but we sort of read Bible with the Bible with the like um, lens of saying, okay, how does this apply to me? What is God saying to me? How is this going to change my life? What sort of focus do I need to have? Right. And mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, this scripture is is not just about seeking the wisdom of the Lord or seeking to to uh, obey God's instructions or obey um, God's kind law, um, although it does say that. But it's also calling us to pass down our faith to others, right? Uh, to raise right. up our children in the faith, um, and and so um, 
you know, I, I think I look at verse six uh, or verse the, the last part of verse five. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. And then on to verse seven. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. So there's this sort of sense that this faith is not just something that belongs to me, but that I have a divine responsibility to share. And uh, I guess as a parent with my children, but I, I, I think it goes beyond even that, right? Like we're supposed to share this with, with, with others everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a teaching piece as well, but it's also in a call to evangelism, uh, which right. I know is sometimes a dirty word, but that's just simply sharing <laughs> your faith and living your faith out. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, the people he knew that, that uh, I would say, if it, this is from Hezekiah, we'll say it's from that era. Then the writer of the Psalm knew that, uh, you know, we, they needed to pass this faith on. They need to put it deep roots into their children and the next generation, but also into everyone they encounter. Their faith needs to be more contagious than the, some of the things they encounter. And uh, having been in Babylon and coming back, uh, they've been exposed to a lot of things. And, right. you know, a lot of people did not stay faithful in that time of exile. And so, uh, so I know that, that the evangelistic side of it or the sharing the word and living the word part is as important perhaps even in this as communicating it to their children of the next generation. And, uh, you know, because they almost became extinct basically. You know, that was when right. you put someone in exile, you're trying pretty much to destroy a culture or a faith system, uh, and so uh, this, these priorities become very important when you come back from that, if you survive as a yeah. culture. Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting to me. Um, like, let's set aside the faith lens for just a second. I mean, obviously, you and I read scripture from from that certain worldview of, of, of people that believe um, the, the Bible um, as, uh, as a sufficient rule of both faith and practice, right? That's, uh, that's something that we, we adhere to, but even looking at it historically, right? We know, um, there, there are actually, uh, archeological documents, um, where, uh, there, there's, there's something called the Cyrus scroll, um, where it's an actual copy of the decree, um, that set all of the people that had been, uh, under, um, Babylonian control um, that had been exiled by the Babylonians. When the Persians conquer them, Cyrus sets all of those people free and allows them to go home. We know this is a historical um, uh, thing. And yet um, this cultural distinctiveness of those cultures um, sort of gets lost in time. And um, we know that the Assyrians did similar things and we don't even know uh, like the, once Assyria conquers a lot of these people, we don't see or hear from them ever again. Right. Um, and uh, so between the Babylonians and the Assyrians, uh, the ancient Near East has been completely just shaken up and, and sort of destroyed at this point um, in Israel's history. Um, and I think that what's interesting is that when the Jewish people return, their, their cultural identity is pretty much 
still intact. And in some ways it's stronger than when they left, right? Because now not only are these people believers in Yahweh, which they were before they left in some ways, but now they are, they are faithful believers in Yahweh. And um, so somehow this unique tiny little nation uh, does not lose its voice. It actually, its voice is amplified throughout history because they share this, this story, this, this Torah, this instruction um, that the, their fathers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers and their mothers have passed down to them. Like this, this instruction from the Lord is key to their cultural identity and it allows them to move forward. Um, so just saying that from a historical standpoint, then when you take it from a, a you know, as a pe- people of faith, like we are and say, and that's because God gave them this instruction, it becomes all the more powerful. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I think as I was listening to you speak there, I was thinking, you know, how many cultures get taken over, basically, and taken into an exile of any kind, and then actually come back and are still somehow through all that, they come back and they exist as a unique culture on their own down the road. Right. It I doesn't mean, you happen. Know, it, it's an amazing story of, uh, which has nothing to do with the scripture, I guess, but it, maybe it does, uh, of, of providence of God. Salvific power of God to, you know, have them go into exile and yet then come back and become and, and be, a, be their own unique culture going forward, uh, restored uh, to uh, what they were even stronger than when they went into exile. And, yeah, I mean, and, and think about the timeline involved. Like, it's hard for me to believe that, um, let's say, you know, and this is all, you know, hypothetical, um, but, you know, uh, let's say a country, a country came and conquered the United States, which seems really far-fetched to us nowadays. Um, but we were, we were, you know, my children were taken off um, and uh, they were taken to, uh, let's come up with a country that could never actually do this so that it's uh you know people don't start getting alarmed um (laughs) let's say uh that uh, the united states was conquered by uh brazil and um dominican republic yeah or yeah the dominican republic (laughs) the dominican republic or jamaica (laughs) jamaica ah the jamaican army has conquered the united states my my children are taken off into exile there um and uh, they don't come back right away, right? They, it's 70 years until they come back. Yeah. And so they, while they're gone, they have children and, and their children have children. Like, what are the chances that when they were allowed to return to the United States, uh, that they would still be culturally uh, American, right? Like, what are the chances right. that, that that would be the distinctive thing about them at that point? Um it, it doesn't seem likely, it doesn't seem likely that, that they would still adhere to a lot of the same American beliefs that, that they, that they have now, but this is exactly what happens with these, with these Judahites, with these people that have returned after the Babylonian exile, and it, it's centered in this uh, understanding of God's law, in this, this shared story, in this uh, this sense of this is who we are. This is who God has made us to be. This is how God has called us to live our lives. And this has made us distinctive from the rest of the world. Yeah, they have that uh, distinctive identity. 
of who they are. They, uh, I guess it's caught up uh, in this, uh, one scholar once called it the, the abiding astonishment <laughs> of God's power. Right. An amazing work. You know, it's, it's there in verse four, the wondrous works God has done. You know, that, that's it. Uh, all praise to the Lord and his strength and the wondrous works that God has done. Uh, the history is told through the eyes of the wondrous works. It's not just, you know, in 800 BC, this happened or whatever. It's, it's the wondrous works of God that have carried them through all the years and then even carried them back in through this exile. And so history is about not just dates and times and names, it's really uh, helping people own, the people of faith own these wondrous works of what God has done that's beyond just a timeline side type of understanding of history. Yeah. And, uh, you and, know, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I think that starts to get us towards the ancient solution is, uh, is that understanding like, hey, this is how God has been active in our lives. This is what God has been doing for our people. This is what, this is what God did for your grandma and your great grandma, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, because when you own that sort of uh, rootage of, of the wonders of what God has done, uh, then that makes a culture very different than just a culture based upon, you know, we did this or we did that or we conquered or we conquered uh, to understand that God has done these things through the people and through that nation. Uh it shapes, it gives them ownership in a different way. It gives them, uh, it gives them a deeper to understand who they are and their identity is tied not to what they've done, but what God has done through them. Right. And it takes it to a whole different place. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the solution is to own that history uh, in that way of the works of God through that nation. And, uh, to live into that with what they're about and that's what they try to do or that's what hezekiah i think or you know his his vision when he reinstituted the temple and did everything he did was that they would own that and live into that and that would be part of who they were at the core of their identity right i think uh i think that's a good segue for us to get to to the modern problem right do we you know i i I think it's really almost uh, almost a, a paper tiger in some ways or a straw man argument to say, uh, does, does the modern United States follow the law of God or the, the Bible? I think we can all agree if we, if we just spend five minutes looking at social media um, <laughs> that we probably don't. Um, but, but th there's, it's extremely relevant today, right? Is, Mm -hmm. Is this instruction, is this understanding of God being passed down from one generation to the next? And a lot of times I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's, it's no, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, yeah. But, because I think we, so much of the time when we talk about the faith, Christian faith anyway, we talk about in terms of the facts and knowing and knowing. And uh, what it seems to me we're getting to here is, is, is 
the awe and amazement of God, which is not really a knowing like factual knowing. Uh, and so, you know, I think part of what we struggle with or what our part of our problem is, is that, you know, uh, if you just know all the rules, if you just know all the, all the, uh, you know, the, the 10 commandments and the beatitudes and, you know, if you just know that, that should be enough, but really that's not, uh enough because in our culture and in the modern christian church it's really about the same thing these people were struggling toward had struggled toward and that was having this deep-rooted foundational understanding of the wondrous works of god and not our wondrous works and we get hung up in our wondrous works real well oh yeah and uh you know uh, the institutional understanding of the faith uh, becomes uh, a barrier for evangelism. It also becomes a teaching that's not really healthy. And uh, because when you take it to an institutional type level, all this stuff, then it becomes very cold and hard. And that awe and that abiding astonishment goes away in that process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting, um, you know, there's a really interesting semantics sort of play uh, at work here. Like um, when we talk about knowing, you know, like when I say um, I know about God, a lot of times I am saying that in an academic sense, right? Like mm -hmm. I have a master's degree that tells me that I should know things about God, right? I could tell you, you know, I could read things in Greek and Hebrew, not very well, but I can. Um, I can uh, tell you within a couple of decades when each book of the Bible was probably written. I can tell you the narrative arc of the entire Bible, but Knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God, right? Like knowing right. God, like having an encounter with God. And, and scripture uh, or this passage seems to be saying that it's not just enough to tell people about, um, you know, our history as Christian folks or whatever. It's to be talking about God's history and, and not just about God's history, but about the mighty things God has done for you. Like there's a, there's a sort of an assumption of an encounter that uh, that is at place in the in this passage, and that might make some of us uncomfortable uh, as modern people. Right, we like the scientific model where you just you know dissect it and you get the parts and the pieces and and that's you know uh, the hard facts if you will and uh, and so much time we do we we take the faith down to just you know, the hard facts, the, the dates and times and those sort of pieces. And this is really talking about when you get to these things of wondrous works that God has done, you're getting to where God and people had an encounter, a life-changing, transformative encounter. And for many of us, that's, we look back at our lives and we, we can see those moments where we've had those encounters. Maybe we hear those moments from our history uh, but those aren't always the things that are shared. Uh, but those are the things that have the power to transform others. And also for us, to have strength in our faith. 
is to go back to those places. Uh, we think about probably I'm moving to the modern solution, but anyway, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think remembering when we first encountered God and Jesus, uh, you know, where that was, what that was like, uh, to take ourselves back there, to also do that in terms of not just us, but when you hear the stories of uh, the fathers and mothers of our faith, uh, to listen to those stories in terms of how God and how the God-human encounter occurred. And that be our history, right? That's where the richness is. That's where, that's where the spirit works, is in those encounters. And uh, so, anyway, so I don't know really where. I think I wandered off somewhere there. No, I think <laughs> I, I think you're right. You're you're spot on. Uh, and I think that we as Methodists, uh, you know, uh, we you and I are Methodist Christians. And uh, sort of the assumption is, that, oh, yeah, they're the smart people that believe in God, right? Like we, uh, you know, and so we hear a word like testimony and we think, oh, that, that's a word that belongs to other denominations. But really, very much it's at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? In, in Revelation, it says um, that we overcome by the power of our testimony in the blood of the Lamb, right? So um, what we say about God is important. And I've had so many people in my um, my ministry, both as a, a pastor to adults, which is what I do now, but even in my my previous um, um, ministries where I've been um, a missionary, a, a foreign missionary, and where I've been a, a youth minister, uh, it seems to be a universal thing. People say, I don't know how to give a testimony because isn't that where you're supposed to convince people to, to come and, and, and start following God. And, and, and I said, no, a testimony is, it's an eyewitness account. You're telling people what God has done in your life. And when you do that, it has power and, and, and it draws people to Christ. And so um, like, if you're listening to this and you, you know, if you, if you haven't decided to follow Jesus, if you're still sort of uh, you know, tipping your, your, your toe into the, the water to, to test it out. Um, you know, uh, God is still at work in your life. And there's some story that, that you have that you will tell one day. Uh, and I'm sure of that, but if you are a follower of Christ and, and, um, you need encouragement, let me just say this, like the simplest thing when it comes to your testimony is not to memorize a bunch of Bible verses and to come up with some sort of intellectual argument on why God exists or why God is active in someone's life or why somebody is a sinner. The, the number one thing that you can do is talk about how you have experienced God being present in your life. And that is what we call a testimony. And, and that is what uh, Psalm 78 is telling, is telling people, right? Be ready to tell your children and your children's children, what God has done for us. And if right. you can tell that story, then the faith will be passed on. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I think that's a, that's really what it comes down to is that we, we, uh, you know, knowledge does not guarantee faithfulness, right? Just knowing something, but what faithfulness is about is when we own it in our hearts. Yeah. And our testimony is really what comes from our heart. 
right uh you know it's it's it is that encounter it's the story of the encounter it does and you know the thing is is people worry about well i just gotta say it right and i gotta get it all you know make it sound really good and clean. yeah well, yeah you know if you think about it it's got to be authentic and and so polishing it up is really not making it more authentic no uh, i think maybe we've watched too many uh too many uh really smooth uh preachers television preachers maybe right and that's not what really connects with people it's when you just tell your story as your story and uh because that's when you're speaking from your heart and we know that the faith as with these people coming back from exile uh the faith was kept in their hearts not in their heads right and the conversion occurs in the heart it's a conversion of the heart that that is where that happens so a testimony is from our heart and it's our authentic story that uh that isn't uh necessarily polished and shined into some beautiful attractive perfect oratory experience right uh, and i think back to last week or two weeks ago uh, uh when we were talking about the thessalonians and and paul makes a point to say we didn't attract you with our super great speaking right right is instead it was the love that we had and and you kind of get the idea that uh, that paul wasn't super high on himself as a speaker but he was <laughs> he was always uh very proud of how he loved a community or how he poured into a community right and and so been able to tell his story in a real way um instead of you know i wonder how how paul would react to uh some of um, you know, people that we call evangelists today saying, okay, Paul, you got to have your three minute elevator pitch. You got to have your, right. you got to right. have your, your, your testimony <laughs> polished and ready to go. And I'm like, and, and Paul would just like, look at them and said, I, ha I had an encounter with the living God, you know, that's you right. want me to get it down to three minutes. Okay. You know, <laughs> like that's, uh, that's kind of silly when we really think about it. It's a sales approach, not a relationship approach. Right. Right. And, and the gospel, I mean, the, the Bible, the one thing we know about the Bible is it's all about relationship. Right. Uh, you know, this is God's story uh, of desiring relationship with humans. Right. That's the story of the Bible and doing all sorts of things, forgiving. He goes through all these things uh, God does in order to have that relationship and establish that relationship. So we know that for us to be authentic Jesus followers, we too have to be willing to seek relationship first in these things. Right. The way to do that is we just tell our story from our hearts and let that be. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always adequate. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, this passage is the start of the entire Psalm which we could have read, but it would have, I think it's 70 some verses long. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like just uh, reading it word by word and then going through and talking about the Hebrew <laughs> definition of each word in each verse for 77 verses. Yeah. We could probably spend about, you know, make this about a five hour podcast <laughs> and uh, you'd be, 
you all would be able to, this would be the perfect thing to listen to when you're ready to go to sleep at night, because I think by the time we got about 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes into it, you'd be out for the night. Right. I think, and, uh, uh, honestly, it'd be hard for Mark and I to stay awake. Well, uh, that's the other side. But but if, but, but if you do read it, because, you know, uh, I did read it, and uh, it is a beautiful testimony to God's uh, God's involvement in the world and in the life of the Hebrews people, the Jewish people, and uh, his miraculous works among them. And so, uh, but it's just told as a story, a historical story of uh, what God has meant to the people of Israel. And that's our story too. And we all have a story. I think that's important for people to realize is Everyone has a story, and your story is just as authentic, just as important as anyone else's story. And uh, when you speak it from your heart. Uh, and I think that is a, you know, I would recommend reading the, the rest of Psalm 78 as well. And I love the way the psalm ends in verse 72. It says, he cared for them with a true heart and mm -hmm. led them with skillful hands, right? Right. Um, so it is this sort of symbolic retelling of the Jewish story. It's uh, it's this kind of uh, this sort of um, uh, you know, in in some ways, a, a propaganda piece for <laughs> for learning instruction from God. Um, but it it's also a reminder of who God is, right? This this God that loves them and cares for them with a true heart, and who is. Uh, leading them skillfully and that's the god that they've had an encounter with and that's the god that they've been charged with uh helping you to have an encounter with right that's right that's right so yeah, i think that's that's the beauty of the whole thing is that uh, that we all can have that encounter and most of us probably have already had some level of that encounter in our own lives and that's your story and god has given you that story he's written it on your heart Right. And uh, so we live into that. We live with that assurance of that story, but also we live into that story as we live it out into the world. And uh, so uh, it's a story of awe and wonder if it's your story or it's a story of the entire nation of Israel. Because when God's in it, it's always a story of awe and wonder. Yeah. And a blessing. Amen. Well, that seems like a, as good a place as any for us to stop this week. We would love for you to share this podcast with your friends, uh, to go on to iTunes and, uh, and give us a rating or give us a rating on Apple Music, um, whatever it is, however uh, you, um, you want to respond, there are multiple ways for you to do that. I think I just lost Mark in a lightning strike or a power surge or something. So hopefully he can hear this and respond. But if not, uh, we want you to know that we both love you. And that we, we.